for a word of prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for tonight. The words of that song are so rich as we think about you coming to this earth to serve us, those who did not deserve it. We think of all that you did while you were here, fulfilling every portion of the will of the Father, accomplishing every need, living a perfect, sinless life that all who would believe upon you would be saved. You paid that price for our sin through your own death on a cross and that we could know you as an unfathomable gift, rich in every way, profound and beyond our comprehension. And so we open your word to understand who you are in a greater way. We open your word to see what was accomplished for us, that we might be able to share the good news that we know by way of experience and knowing you, and we know by way of understanding your truth. <clears throat> so help us do that, and help us be changed by it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're returning again tonight to our study of the doctrine of the atonement, and I want us to spend a little time here in a moment in Romans chapter 8. The atonement is a mind-challenging doctrine, a doctrine that will cause us to ask a lot of questions, a doctrine that in many ways, some of our questions will not be answered as we ask them because God has chosen not to answer those questions in any direct way. And while we can draw implications from what he has said, oftentimes our full questions are not answered. And at the same time, the heart's desire of us is not always satisfied through the things that we hear from God, particularly concerning the atonement and the issue, understanding the kind of death that Christ died. Now, obviously, when we say that, we can say, well, he died a death, a sinner's death on a cross. That's the kind of death that he died. But what we mean is, what did it accomplish? What did the death of Christ actually accomplish? As we began a few weeks ago, we began to look at a few terms that the Bible uses to describe the atonement, to describe the way in which Christ's death actually saved us. We looked at redemption, a term in the Old Testament that deals with the buying back, the purchasing of someone from the slave market usually a family member, usually someone with the opportunity, someone with the means in order to take care of that. And in the death of Christ, that was a transaction that took place, the redemption of sinners, a buying back that happened for all of those whom Jesus saves. 
Now, of course, we looked at another term, reconciliation, and the fact that through the death of Jesus Christ, the, the enmity, the hostility between us and God was removed. We are no longer enemies of God. He is no longer an enemy of those whom he saves. They are reconciled to him. And in fact, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So we go and tell others in the gospel how they too could be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, how the hostility between them as God is angry with the wicked every day, how the hostility of God against them can be removed through the doctrine of reconciliation. And then we also saw the term propitiation last time. Propitiation, which describes how through the death of Christ, the wrath of God is mitigated. The wrath of God is satisfied. The fact that we are under the wrath of God by nature in our sinfulness, and we are children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 said, and yet through Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. And all of those words are important when we think about the doctrine of the atonement, when we think about the kind of death that Jesus Christ died, because each one of them lies at the center of that very reality. Each one of those terms lies at the center of the kind of death that Jesus Christ died. All of those words together describe the monumental truth of Christ dying for sinners like us. You cannot have the death of Christ without dealing with the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of reconciliation, the doctrine of propitiation. And all of those ought to really cause us, at least at a minimum level, to worship God more. When we think about those, those realities, when we think about the death of Christ, it, it should cause us to really have a heightened worship for God. However, knowing those terms and that they all actually took place, as we saw from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there was never a potentiality in those terms as described in Scripture. They were always actual things that took place when a price was paid and when that redemption happened. Knowing that brings up in our minds other questions raises up in our minds other questions when we think about salvation and the truth of the atonement. And I'm sure over our last several weeks, as we have studied the atonement, you've probably thought of other questions. And we, we've tried to at least begin to give some kind of answers to some of those questions in the past. And I want to speak to some of them here tonight, because one of the questions, one of the curiosities that we have in our minds is this. If all of that actually took place, if redemption happened and reconciliation happened and propitiation happened at the death of Christ in the past, then how does that work? How does that work if Christ died well over 2,000 years ago and neither you nor I were there? How does that work? How does it work if God saved me, if they were actualities, if that actually happened at the death of Christ, 
redemption, reconciliation, propitiation. Now, how does that, on the basis of that, how is it actually accomplished for me if I wasn't even alive? In other words, if Christ's death was our redemption, it was not a potential redemption, but was an actual redemption. If Christ's death was our actual reconciliation, if God Christ's death was the reality in actuality that the wrath of God was satisfied, how did that happen before I ever existed? And if that's true, as the Bible declares it and describes it, then why do we speak of our redemption and our reconciliation and our propitiation in terms of our earthly life now? You say, what do you mean? I mean, if I was to ask you tonight to tell me when you were saved, you would probably speak of your conversion by means of the day and the time and the year that you were converted. You would say, well, it was back in 19 such and such at this time, at this place. You would speak of it in that kind of way. So if we were reconciled and redeemed and propitiated at the death of Christ, which happened millennia before or thousands of years before we were alive, then how can we speak of it as if it happened now? When were we redeemed? When were we reconciled? When was the wrath of God propitiated? Was it when Christ died? Or was it when we came to believe? Or was it at some other time altogether? Something different? Well, we've already discussed some of those nuances in our study in our previous time together, but I want us to look at this in reference to Romans chapter 8 and how the Apostle Paul describes salvation. Romans chapter 8. We we spent time here months and months ago when we were studying through Romans, but but I just want to touch on two verses here, and not really in great depth, but just to kind of highlight something for us so that we understand this whole reality of when we were saved. Verse 29, we know the passage well, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, speaking of God, this is what God has done. Whom he foreknew, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now this is the classic text when it comes to many of the realities that take place in salvation, right? There is a foreknowledge that happens with God. There is a predetermining, a predestining. There is a calling, there is a justification, and there is a glorification, So here is the important point right out of the gate that we all understand if we understand language at all. All of these terms that the Apostle Paul lists here for us in verse 28 and 29, or I'm sorry, 29 and 30, all of these terms are spoken of as if it's already taken place. 
predestined, called, justified, glorified. Each of these terms grammatically is in the past tense, something that has happened in the past, a completed action in the past. So God, through the Apostle Paul, this is the Word of God, God lists these truths in such a way that what it is saying is that these things are realities that, at least in some fashion, were completed, were all finished in the life of every believer in the past. That's hard for us to grasp. That's hard for us to comprehend. Because we know we were born in sin. We know that we were sons of the prince of power of the air, Ephesians 2 says. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We all walked according to the flesh. And yet here, the Apostle Paul is saying, all these things in a past tense way have happened. In fact, he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, we know in one sense that that can't fully be a reality of accomplishment in time. Right? This predestining, this calling, this justification, this glorification, we know that it can't be in reality an accomplishment in time because even when you look at it from your own life, even when you look at it from your own experience, we know that it says that all believers have been called. It says that all believers have been justified. Why? Because they have been predestined. And it also says that they've been glorified. So even if we could say that in time we have been called and justified, even if we could explain those terms in some kind of way that they are time elements that are the here and now, we still couldn't explain glorification that way because glorification, we're still here. We're still on this earth. We're still breathing this air. We're still walking on this earth. You and I have not yet been glorified. And even if someone has died physically and left this earth in a physical way and they are with the Lord, they're still not yet in their bodily glorification that is to come when there is the resurrection. To be glorified is to be made perfect in every way, including a new body. You're with Christ, but you're not in your glorified body yet. So, so even if we stipulate in our understanding and in our argumentation for our own thoughts, even if we stipulate on the realities of calling and justification, it still remains a question in our mind that not a single believer has been fully glorified yet. And yet here Paul is saying with unequivocal terminology that Christians have been glorified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So which is it? Which is it? Are we glorified as Christians? Or are we yet to be glorified as Christians? Well, I think we know the answer to those questions. The answer is yes. 
The answer is yes. To both questions, the answer is yes. It's the same. Why? Because of who God is. Because of who God is and because of who is speaking. The perspective from which Paul is speaking is not the perspective of us looking at salvation, but this is the perspective from God in salvation. This is God's declaration. This is God being outside of time, and therefore when God declares it, it is as if it is what? Done. For example, let's say that you're an ancient king. You have your own kingdom, and you have a desire to build some kind of structure for yourself, some kind of grand palace somewhere, and you plan it out, and the day comes whereby you are going to call all of your construction experts together so that they can see the plans, and you can tell them what your plans is, and you can tell them, build this building. And because you're the king, and because your word is law, they say to you, as you say, Master, it is done. It is done. As you say, it's done. Now, from our perspective, we would say, well, that's not very accurate. That's not accurate at all. It's, it's obviously not done. Nothing has been done. There has been no foundation laid. There's been no walls put up. There's been no stones carved. It is done, they say, is that reality. How can they say it's done if they haven't even started? The answer is because the king's word is absolute. The king's word is unchanging. When the king speaks, it's as if it's done. So for him to say, do it, is as good as for him to say, it's a finished product. It's a done deal. Nothing will stop it from happening. And this is exactly the perspective that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in Romans 8. For those whom he, that is God, this is exclusive. For whom he, God foreknew, for whom he put his love upon in eternity past, right? We were chosen, Ephesians 1 says, in him before the foundation of the world. When the plan and mind of God as God was setting forth His redemptive plan in the Godhead as the Father, Son, and the Spirit are there, this is part of it for whom He foreknew, chose to love in this saving way those He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among the many brethren and whom He predestined he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, what God is doing through these words, God is giving us a glimpse at salvation from the moment of his decree to save. It's as if God being the ancient king said, this is what I want you to do, and it was done. As if it had always been done. As if it had always been accomplished. In other words, salvation was a certainty for all those whom God has chosen to save. Why? Because God's word is absolute. Because God's word is absolute. 
And therefore, all those whom God has chosen to save will, in fact, absolutely be saved because God's word is absolute. It is so absolute, it is so certain that not even God himself will, not even God himself can go against it. For him to go against it would be for him to go against his very character. And that is something God cannot do. For him to go against himself would be for him to no longer be God. And that is impossible. So, when we think about the atonement and we think about our salvation, in time, the plan of salvation commenced. And God was in Christ saying, here is the redemption of my people. Here is the actual carrying out of what has been in the decree of myself done. Here is the redemption of my people. Here is the reconciliation of my people. Here is the satisfaction of my wrath, the propitiation for my people. And from our perspective, as we look at the death of Christ in our history, in our time, none of us were born yet. But from God's perspective, being outside of time, the death of Christ in time was simply the carrying out of what he had decreed with certainty outside of time. So what God had declared, what he had predestined, what he had said would take place, we see in time the accomplishment of that reality in time, even though it had been accomplished in eternity past. So the death of Christ accomplished in time what was already certain. And therefore it can be spoken of in a past tense way. That's why the Apostle Paul says it this way. In fact, that's exactly why he's declaring what he declares in verse 28. We know that God, what? Causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that because God's word is certain. God's word is absolute. When God declares it, it is. It's as if God is saying, let there be light, and there was immediately. The elements that God brought forth from nothing could not sit there and remain nothing. God's power caused them to exist. So when God speaks, that's it. So the death of Christ brought redemption and reconciliation and propitiation to the point of reality in time. Even though they were already declared and settled in eternity past, henceforth the past tense verbiage that Paul says here. So from the perspective of God, we are glorified. We are glorified even though we still walk the face of this earth, even though we still sin, even though we still act in ways that we should not act because from the mind of God, our glorification was already as certain as God's decree. And it was done before time ever, ever began. Interesting, in Ephesians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5,
This is the passage that always confuses me at times when I hear someone say that the church is going to endure, have to endure some kind of outpouring of wrath, the wrath of God. This is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when I hear someone in an eschatological fashion say that the church is going to have to endure some kind of sense of the wrath of God going through part of the rapture or going through part of the tribulation and all these things, I always think about 1 Thessalonians 5 because just beginning in verse 1 to kind of set it for us. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Right? That sounds much familiar to 2 Peter. Well, they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Paul's referring to the time when Christ returns. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to or for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Build one another up. God hasn't destined us for wrath. That's appointed. That word means appointed. God hasn't appointed us to wrath. He took care of that. Jesus Christ is a propitiation. How did he take care of that? By obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God hasn't destined us for wrath. Why in the world would we go through the wrath of God, which the tribulation period is the wrath of God on display? God's word is certain. When God decrees it, when God declares it, it is done. And so the Apostle Paul, in the beginning of this great chapter of Romans, right before he talks about Israel's whole being set aside for the sake of the Gentiles, talks about salvation from the perspective of God. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and he justified, and he glorified. So if God's for us, who can be against us? You see, once the decree is made, all that needed to be done, all that needed to be done was the project of time. That's it. Technology kills you. That's all that needed to be finished. This is partly why Christ could say from the cross, it is finished. That's why Christ could say that, that it's completely finished because redemption was finished, reconciliation was finished in an actual, in an actual way. The plan of God, all these things that God had predetermined were done. It is finished. Once he was sacrificed, Redemption and reconciliation and propitiation were done. 
They were as certain in time as they had been in eternity past. So in one sense, when we think about salvation from the perspective, at least from God's perspective, in one sense, we were saved before we were ever created. And in another sense, we're saved when we believe upon Jesus Christ in time. There is still a part to come, right? Time when we will be fully glorified in reality. The mind of God and the decree of God is as good as done, and yet in time that still must take place. Now, let us just think about one more aspect of this whole idea of atonement. And I don't want to get too far into all of this in our time tonight. We probably won't go very long because of that, because I want to get into some of those passages that will, that are, that cause us so much trouble in the next several weeks. But I want to just talk about one more aspect before we're done tonight that, and, and, and our heads just spin off our necks. You know what I mean? We're trying to think about this. When we started in our study a few months ago, we we asked the question, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? And when I I asked that question, what what I was meaning is, for whom is the death of Christ meant to be a redemption and a reconciliation and a propitiation? For whom is the death of Christ actually meant to be those things which actually happened in time that were declared in eternity past? And it's true that anybody who is to be saved must receive what Christ did for them, right? They must entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. That is true. The Bible clearly declares that. It's plain in Scripture. In fact, we have to emphasize that when we share the gospel. You must repent and believe. That's what Jesus said. But but even that doesn't necessarily answer the question or help us with all of that because what is it that he did? What is it that he did in this? The Bible teaches that Christ's death did not create an opportunity for people to be redeemed. That's not how the Bible teaches it. It's not how the Bible teaches redemption. It didn't open up a door of opportunity for people to be redeemed. When we speak about the death of Christ and when we speak about redemption from the Old and New Testament, it speaks about redemption as redemption, not as an opportunity for redemption. It's redemption. It's an actuality. And what is redemption? Redemption is freedom. Freedom paid by a price. Freedom bought by a price. So if Christ's death actually secured freedom for those for whom He died, they are free from sin. They are free from the slavery of sin. They are free from the consequences that come with the penalty of sin. Freedom. The death of Christ. And again, the Bible does not teach that Christ's death created an opportunity for people to be reconciled to God. It doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches Christ's death as reconciliation. 
What is reconciliation? Friendship, right? It's renewing of that friendship, that broken relationship between God and man. So Christ's death actually secured friendship with God for those for whom he died. And the Bible also does not teach that Christ's death created an opportunity for men to have God's wrath turned away from them. It describes his death as propitiation. It is propitiation. The turning away of God's wrath. So the death of Christ actually secured, it made certain that no wrath would fall upon those for whom he died. Christ's death did not create opportunities. Christ's death established certainties. It didn't create opportunities. It established what God had decreed in time past. There were certainties. So everyone for whom the Lord Jesus died surely is reconciled to God. So the answer to the question, for whom did Christ die, is clear. He died for His people. He died for all of those and only those whom He would bring into the kingdom of God, into the family of God forever. For He is firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 Is it any wonder that we as the children of God adore God? He is our God and Christ is the firstborn among us. Now, let, let me just kind of close down our time with this. Because we know from Scripture that there, there are general benefits that come to all people through the death of Christ. In, in, in a sense, the atonement of Jesus Christ accomplished salvation, uh, the, the accomplishment of the decree of God in eternity past in time for all those whom He saved. But there's benefits, residual benefits, if you will, that flow to all people, even those who will never be saved. In other words, there is a sense in which we can say that the atonement of Jesus Christ brings some kind of benefit to all people, even if it is not saving faith. What are those benefits? Well, Christians are a blessing even to the lost world. Right? There's a sense in which morality is... is uh, holding back, if you will, by the, by the power of God, through the Spirit of God in His people. Morality is, is thought of in different ways because of the righteousness of God's people among the world. Of course, we know from Acts that God allows His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. Therefore, there is a common sense of grace that God allows for all people. And the fact that God's final wrath upon man is being withheld for the moment by his patience until all of his chosen are saved. It's part of what Second Peter chapter two or chapter three means when it says that. 
that he is patient, not, not desiring any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we speak of the atonement, we're not talking about it in a general way. When we speak about the atonement, we're referring to it in a specific way. We're asking, was the atonement offered for the saving of all people or or was it offered only for the saving of a specific group of people? That's the question we're asking. And that's an important question to ask, and it's an important distinction to think about because some come out and say that Christ died for the sins of all people who ever lived. And if that's the case, particularly from our understanding of this text and other texts that we've looked at when we've looked at the atonement when it comes to redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation, if that's the case, then the implication is either that all men will eventually be actually saved, that all people will eventually be actually saved, and the secondary question of that, if that's the case, then why, what happened to Judas? Just on the front part of it. Or, if he died for the sins of all people, then Christ actually redeemed and reconciled and turned away the wrath of God for people who will eventually be condemned forever. If God actually reconciled, redeemed, and propitiated for the sins of all people, then there will be people for whom Christ actually redeemed, reconciled, and turned away the wrath of God who will eventually be condemned forever. Those are our only two options. There are no other options. If Christ died for the sins of all people. So will every person who has ever lived be saved? We could answer that with no, because we know that Judas does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a son of perdition. We know he's not in glory. We know he's not saved There are others clearly from the Scriptures that are not saved. Plenty of the Pharisees did not know and believe upon Jesus Christ. And so the only biblical answer is no, not everybody will be saved, even though we might desire that to be otherwise. Certainly as a Christian, our hearts desire that all people would be saved. Why? Because we know the existence of hell. Some will be saved. And yet some will be lost forever. And secondly, the second answer can't be true either. If Christ died for all sins, then certainly Christ actually, if he redeemed, reconciled, and turned away the wrath of God, then certain people will eventually be condemned whom he did that for. That can't be true either because then that pits the Father against the Son, doesn't it? our doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that God is one God, then the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God in essence in every way. And how can God the Father make a decree to save and then go against his own decree by condemning some on which he said as decreed to save? How can the Father and the Son be one, but then go against each other in accomplishing that task? And so someone comes along and suggests that Christ died for all. But it's actually upon men to accept that. 
Christ died for all, but it's only applicable when men accept it. And that is simply to say that God, in the death of Christ, filled up a big heavenly bucket of potential saving forgiveness that's only applied to a person when they accept Jesus. But if we have that as our answer, then we have the same problem because the Bible never describes salvation in that way through the terms that we've looked at. Those are all terms related to salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. And if God filled up a bucket of forgiveness in hopes to apply it when someone believes, then it wasn't actual. Then he didn't actually accomplish those things as a death on the cross. It was just potential. And there's a bucket filled up in heaven of forgiveness that somehow can be applied to every person if they would just believe. And if long as we in the gospel would convince them that this is the right way, then they too, as long as they're convinced, might have their will changed. But these terms are actual realities. And therefore, if Christ died only for those whom he saves, and we understand it to be that, that he only dies for those whom he saves, then where in the world did the church get the idea that Jesus died for the sins of every person who has ever existed? Where did the church get that idea? Well, the answer to that question is that they got it from the verses in the Bible. I want to begin to look at some of those next time. Next time. Because that's where they get it. Because there's terms in the Scriptures that speak about all. There's terms in the Scriptures that speak about many. There's terms in the Scriptures that speak about these universal ideas and this is where people turn to in order to say, see, doesn't that mean the entire world? And I want to look at some of those so that we have an understanding of those so that we can not be confused. I know this is stretching our minds to think of these things because we're looking at it from the perspective of God and thinking about it in our own time and how we were saved and all those kind of things. We're not denying Salvation by faith, faith through grace. We're not denying any of that. We're not denying the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We're not denying any of that. We're simply saying, for whom did Jesus actually accomplish a real redemption, a real reconciliation, and a real propitiation? And I will say the Bible declares it to be only for those whom he has chosen to save and not for everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this quick look, really, at your word. Thank you for this amazing reality that in your heart and mind was the desire to save. None of us deserved it. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. None of us deserved to be saved, and yet you declared to save. And because of your gracious mercy and your declaration to save, you chose whom it would be that you would save. Not because of merit on their own, not because 
You looked down through the annals of annals of time and saw that somehow in their goodness they would choose you one day, and so you chose them, and therefore in time they were saved. No, it was none of that. It was all simply because of your grand mercy and grace, the declaration made by you, and therefore it was accomplished. And the only reason any of us are sitting here saved tonight is because you called us. You drew us to yourself. You, in Christ, justified us, declared us righteous, and gave us the faith that we might believe. And in your heart and mind, we are already glorified, and one day we will in time be actually glorified. And so we are grateful for that. We are thankful that it is certain. It is done. And all that must happen now is the passing of time according to your great plan of redemption that all might come in that we might worship you fully, fully glorified in your kingdom. Lord, help us to honor you because of that. Help us not to be overly grieved that all won't be saved, but help us be just wonder, sitting in marvelous wonder that you would save any of us and pray that we would pray to you, that Lord, you would save and that you would use us as instruments of, of your great gospel to save. We would go out to all people, proclaim the gospel, that they too might know Jesus Christ. We don't know whom you have chosen, but we know the means through which you have chosen to do that, and that is the gospel. So help us preach that with great humility, passion, love for others, knowing that you are the one who saves. And we'll give you all the glory. And thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.